Hello, everybody. Welcome to The Loft, which is wonderful and warm tonight. Um, I'm Dan, for those who don't know me, and we are in this series here, How Not to Read the Bible. And as we heard from Cabe when he first spoke to us about this, that the Bible is a library of books telling one unified story that leads to Jesus. So we know that, but we also know there are people who try to use the Bible to, um, you know, I suppose, uh, put verses out of context to create uh, narratives to basically lead people away from faith. You know, they might say, look, the Bible is anti-woman, um, you know, the Bible is uh, pro-slavery, etc., uh, etc. Et and um, uh, these uh, are put out often by people who would be considered uh, the new atheists, uh, who may have a you know following on social media and so forth, and you know they're they're sort of uh, they think their clever effort uh, is to get people offside, and often people don't know to how how to answer these questions. Um, you know, is the Bible um, anti-woman and so forth? So um, uh, tonight we have an interesting topic to deal with, and um, tonight's topic is: Does the Bible condone slavery? So thank you for that easy topic. Um, but, you know, this is something that's put out by um, uh, such uh, new atheist intellectuals as Richard Dawkins, Sam Harris, and I know you think I'm being very pseudo-intellectual being able to cite those because I know you'll have others that you could cite that would be far more highbrow. I understand that. So let's, let's um, you know, try and deal with that, um, you know, in substance tonight and... Perhaps a good place to start is uh, with creation and with God and the way God made people. So we know that um, God did not create slavery. You know, Genesis 1, Genesis 2, there's no slavery, uh, that nobody is created any better than any other person. No race is better than any, than any other race. Um, you know, nobody is superior. And this is said well in Genesis 1, 27, Ruel. Ruel, see somewhere. So, the image of God. And so, dignity and value is very much uh, stripped away whenever there is slavery. And, you know, slavery comes in, you know, with the fall of man as part of uh, the sinful nature, part of the depravity of man, that slavery would come into existence. So slavery existed long before Israel, long before Moses, um, but the Bible itself is actually responsible for the elimination of slavery, uh, not its establishment. In the ancient world, if you were a slave, you were someone's property. You were, um, you were owned outright, you had no rights. It was a very uh, depraved way of living and... Um, you know, someone owning people as slaves was uh, very normative living and harsh slavery was, was normative. And when God started to speak into that, um, he actually came to deconstruct slavery as it already existed, as created by man and not as created by God. And we see Exodus 21 verses 2 to 4. It says, If you buy a Hebrew servant... He is to serve you for six years, but in the seventh year he shall go free 
without paying anything. So here's God um, starting to deconstruct slavery, starting to take the monkey wrench to the bolts at the base of slavery and starting to loosen the nuts. Um, Charles Spurgeon says of uh, this verse and others that Moses didn't institute slavery in any shape. The laws concerning it were made on purpose to repress it, to confine it, and ultimately to end it. God is moving the trajectory of the story forward um, quite methodically. So, you know, we see God liberating people. He talks about how uh, if an owner of a slave um, knocks out their eye or even if it knock, knocks out their tooth, so in, com- in recompense for the tooth being knocked out, that slave needed to be set free. How liberating is that? That's very contrary uh, to what was going on at the time and it shows God's heart towards people and one of the other things that we see uh, here is that um, there was a, a fair bit of economic slavery going on and that's what was being spoken about here, people who would sell themselves uh, perhaps to unburden themselves from overwhelming debt, they would, they would sell themselves uh, you know, to be servants and would you know, live in that uh, servant uh, or slave-master relationship. Deuteronomy 15 uh, tells us um, more of God's heart and, and God's love for people about how you should let a slave go after the six years. Darcy? Yeah, sorry. Deuteronomy 15 from 12. If your brother, a Hebrew man or a Hebrew woman, is sold to you, he shall serve you six years, and in the seventh year you shall let him go free from you. And when you let him go free from you, you shall not let him go empty-handed. You shall furnish him liberally out of your flock, out of your threshing floor, and out of your wine press. As the Lord your God has blessed you, you shall give to him. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God redeemed you. Therefore, I command you this today. So that's an incredible uh, break with the practice uh, that when you let your slave go, uh, you send them off with great food and the best wine. So that's economic slavery. When we think about slavery and when Koshi says the Bible condones slavery, what are you thinking about and what is Koshi talking about? Well, I think what the slur is, is that the Bible somehow authorises what was known as the transatlantic African slave trade that oper- you know, operated between the middle 1500s to the middle 1800s, uh, some 12 million slaves being moved from Africa to America, to the Caribbean, Jamaica, to England. Uh, that the, the slur is, well, God approves of that. The Bible, the Bible condones that. But it absolutely, absolutely doesn't. And the Bible quite forcefully is against that. And we see that from these same uh, passages in Exodus, uh, Exodus 21. Exodus 21.16 says, Anyone who kidnaps someone is to be put to death, whether the victim has been sold or is still in the kidnapper's possession. And so that verse explains that anyone who kidnaps somebody um, to sell they are worthy of the death penalty and anyone who is in possession of someone kidnapped 
uh, is also worthy of the death penalty. So the Bible is very clear that the American slave trade, the transatlantic slave trade, uh, is an abomination to God. And everyone involved in it, in Exodus, uh, was worthy of capital punishment. Uh, God took it that seriously. So we can look at some of the differences and we have between the Old Testament uh, economic slavery and the transatlantic slavery. Um, here are some more. In the Old Testament, runaway slaves were to be protected and given freedom. And we've talked about the maximum duration for indebtedness was six years. And sometimes slaves said, look, I actually like it here, I want to stay. And you might remember they were given like an ear piercing to stay. They say, okay, I'm going to stay, I'm going to be a permanent slave. Well, even they had to be let go at the 50th year, the year of Jubilee. So, you know, God is a liberator. Um, it's interesting that, um, you know, nothing that uh, happened uh, under God's regulations came anything close uh, to the transatlantic slave trade. And we, we kind of know because we have a conscience. We know that slavery is wrong because uh, our conscience tells us that. We don't need uh, Richard Dawkins and we don't need Koshi uh, to tell us that that is wrong. Um, let's think about Joseph. Joseph is an example of somebody who was sold into slavery by his brothers. Uh, you'll recall that he was, um, I think he was his father's favourite and he went out to talk to the other 11 uh, who weren't that keen on Joseph uh, because he was so favoured. And they said, Look, let's kill him. And Reuben, the eldest brother, said, no, don't do that. Let's put him in a pit instead. And um, Reuben's idea, by the way, was to actually get him out of the pit and send him back home to Dad. That was his plan. Anyway, while Reuben was away, the other 10 see some Midian traders come along, like in a, you know, some sort of caravan. And they said, great, we've got an idea, better idea. Let's sell, let's sell him. Let's not kill him. And they sold him for 20 shekels of silver. And so Joseph heads off. The boys sit down. They have lunch. Um, Reuben comes back and says, hey, where is he? He's not in the hole. And he was very upset about what had happened. He wasn't part of the conspiracy. The, we know that Joseph was sold, um, ultimately sold to a captain and um, was successful in all the different circumstances that he faced um, in Egypt, so much so that he became the prime minister. He became the person that had the wisdom to stock up the grain in the quieter times so there was abundance, um, uh, so there was some supply. Let me reverse that. Um, he stocked up the grain in the abundant times so that there was something to uh, feed the people in the lean times that were coming. And when those lean times came, you had a situation where the brothers headed over to see Joseph. So the, the, in fact, 10 boys arrive and Joseph recognises them. They don't, um, they don't recognise Joseph. And Joseph says, you are spies. That's why you're here. You're here to spy the land. And they say, no, no, you've got it wrong. Um, we, we are honest men. We've got, we've got a dad at home. We've got a, a younger son at home. We've got one brother who's no more. And then there's us. We've just come here to get some food. He said, no, you are spies. He puts him in jail. And shortly after, he says, look, if you want to prove that you are not spies, you go back and get that younger son and bring him back here. And that's, that's a terribly confusing difficult situation these boys have got themselves into. Um, 
so Joseph can hear this whole story about the, the way these boys are talking about the sorry mess they're in. But this was 22 years after they sold him into slavery and their conscience was telling them, hey, this is the reason we are in so much trouble is because we once sold our brother Joseph. They weren't connecting him to that guy, but they knew that they had committed a sin and it was catching up with them. And that's what they attributed it to. So our conscience clearly tells us that, you know, um, selling people, kidnapping, selling people um, is absolutely wrong. Um, and good on Reuben, uh, who, who wasn't to blame for this. There's a commentator, Jesse Johnson, who uh, talks about how uh, while the Old Testament is very clear in condemning any slavery like the transatlantic slave trade, so is the New Testament. Because the New Testament talked about a Roman practice referred to as man-stealing, sometimes referred to as kidnapping, uh, sometimes referred to as enslavers. And it's in 1 Timothy 1, chapter 10. So it's a list of people who will not enter the kingdom of God. Slave traders are among those. And that's because it's a very uh, repulsive form of a breach of the Eighth Commandment, that those shall not steal. So um, any, you know, anyone who argues that the Bible justifies something like the transatlantic slave trade is completely wrong. Uh, this is not a grey area. And um, anybody involved in that, uh, Paul said, were you know, unrighteous and couldn't inherit the kingdom of heaven. Thinking about the New Testament times, uh, we know of a, uh, a, someone who owned servants, Philemon, who were referred to as slaves. Uh, he had a, a slave, an economic slave, named Onesimus. Onesimus ran away. I think he might have taken some money from, um, from Philemon. Uh, he ran into Paul. He became a Christian. And Paul sent him back to Philemon and said, I want uh, you to make him... Um, receive him back not as a slave, but more than that, as a brother. So Paul was you know, undermining even that economic slavery um, by going to the hearts of men. So Paul was no fan of slavery and sought to undermine it. Some of this work is kind of quite indirect. It's very much getting underneath and destabilising it from underneath. Let's talk a little bit about the transatlantic slave trade. So it operated between 1522 and 1866 and there were about 12.5 million uh, Africans shipped to North America, Caribbean and South America. Uh, only 10.7 million survived uh, that journey in the slave ships. Uh, we have a picture of uh, a ship called the Brook, uh, which was a slave ship. And this was a very widely copied image and it was used by those who campaigned against the slave trade, and it was created in 1787. And it shows how the Africans were transported. Um, that ship is depicted as loaded to its full capacity, 454 people crammed into the hold. Um, and, you know, the Caribbeans, they, they were basically um, uh, in the sugar plantations, which was very, very difficult work. Uh, there, were, there was no technology in the 1700s. So it was manual land clearing, uh, manual planting, very, very difficult work. And uh, these, these slaves who were transported in this way had a very short life expectancy in the Caribbean. I've heard it said they would have somewhere between seven years, uh, but certainly under 20. 
You know, they, they had... And so these ships kept moving. It was like bringing troops to the front lines in World War I. Um, it was a very, very... Um, um, uh, the supply and demand was really there uh, to meet the demand in Europe and in England for sugar. Um, we know that William Wilberforce uh, became uh, involved in this and I think the... Um, and I might say too, the, these people here uh, who were transported in this way, uh, it said that they didn't see sunlight. Uh, they obviously lost a lot of weight, got scurvy, got very sick. It's a very, very difficult, um, very difficult business. Um, I've got a picture there, Meg, um, maybe it's just the actors for William Wilberforce. Here we go. In, in the movie Amazing Grace, I haven't got an actual photo of William Wilberforce, but that's him as depicted in Amazing Grace with... Um, uh, William Pitt, young William Pitt, um, to the foreground, and uh, he was the Prime Minister and they were good friends. So um, people prevailed on William Wilberforce, who is on your left, um, depicted on your left, uh, to take up the slave trade. And there was a, a dinner party uh, in March of, of 1787, and he said, look, I'll do it, providing no, no one more proper is found to do it. And... Um, Anyway, he, he reluctantly or slowly agreed to this, probably not reluctantly, and he wrote in his journal in 1787, the God Almighty has set before me two great objects, the suppression of the slave trade and the reformation of manners, which was moral values. We've also heard of John Newton, the great hymn writer who was instrumental in Wilberforce's um, advocacy and Newton was a slave trader. He ran these ships. Uh, he put people on the ships and he became a Christian uh, during a storm on the Atlantic. And that's, that um, is well documented. It was 1748 and he became a Christian. What's a little shocking is that he didn't immediately think, okay, the slave trade's bad, I need to stop doing this. That actually didn't dawn on him for some years. We like to think it happened immediately. It actually didn't. And there's some writing uh, somewhere, um, sort of storytelling of him, that he'd be writing his spiritual journey on the quarter deck while the slaves were below. Eventually, though, um, and he said later in life that the reason that he didn't realise that slavery, the slave trade was wrong, was because of custom, an example, and that the interest he personally had in it had blinded his eyes. Uh, so, um, but eventually um, Newton did condemn the, the slave trade uh, and was part of the growing anti-slave sentiment in the 1780s. And um, um, he made a public confession of his involvement and he devoted himself to destroying the system. He gave evidence twice to committees in the House of Commons, uh, which was um, how the legislation was being considered and um, he encouraged William Wilberforce in what he was doing. And it's amazing that that hymn, Amazing Grace, um, and, you know, Newton in writing that, he didn't write it sing, singing about the terrible things that other people had done to him. It was because of the things that he had done himself. And so I think we need grace not because of what terrible things people have done to us, but what terrible things we have done. Interesting to reflect upon. Um, 
This movement did lead to the abolition of the slave trade uh, in 1807 in uh, Britain and uh, 1808 in the US. Uh, slavery itself was abolished in 1833 in Great Britain and 1863 in the US. Um, and, you know, that, that was the law. Many, many bad practices have continued ever since and modern slavery is a reality as well. It's not legal, but it, it continues to uh, exist in a number of industries uh, and supply chains are because of the depravity of man. So it's interesting to think about, um, you know, what, what was invisible to uh, Newton at the time. He became a Christian, he was praying, he was writing in journals, and the English people were having lots of cups of tea with lots of sugar, and the sugar was all um, relatively inexpensive because of the slave labour. These people weren't bad people, many of them church-going. And you wouldn't generally speak about slavery in church because there'd be slave owners in church. So um, that, that wouldn't be done. It's interesting that the Anglican Church in March of this year uh, have just released a report, a finding, that they were uh, complicit in profiting from slavery uh, in the 1700s. So they, um, they have a, a trust uh, which exists, an investment trust. The predecessor of that goes way back to the 1700s. And a few years ago, they, there was talk about, well, hang on, I think you've profited from slavery. And they had forensic accountants over this for four years. They've just re released a report and said, yes, we were. Uh, and the, as the Anglican Church, we knew what we were doing. Uh, we had interest, I think it was called the South Sea Company. And um, uh, we made money of it, out of it. The purpose of the trust was to pay for clergy. So how incredibly distorting is all of that? So <clears throat> it's also a little um, worrying that at the time, uh, church people actually created a Bible for slaves. The Bible uh, was... Um, headed up uh, for slaves in East India, but it had um, uh, most of the New Testament, most of the Old Testament wasn't there. Uh, any verses that would speak about freedom or liberation were removed. This is incredible spiritual abuse. And the Anglicans have put this on display in March, saying, yeah, um, Christians were doing this as well, distributing this Bible to keep people oppressed. It, it wasn't a Bible. Uh, it was shorn of the spirit of God, the freedom of God, designed to keep people oppressed. I'm going to finish with this verse, Galatians 5, chapter 1. For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not be subject again to a yoke of slavery. So we know that God is a liberator, that God wants to set all people free, wants to set us free, and it is a great encouragement to know that uh, Christ has set us free, we should stand firm and we should not submit to anything that would bring us into slavery. Thank you. Discuss among yourselves. God bless.